Before we jump in, a note on our content. This is created for adult audiences only. We advise listener discretion. We have discussions about sexual violence against women. We use bad swear words. We talk openly about women's autonomy. And you might just hear some opinions that don't jive with your own. We're not even thinking about pleasure. It's like you are your dad's property till you become your husband's property and then you better have a male heir, right? And that is your value. We don't care whether you're having a good time. I mean, even the law doesn't recognize women's autonomy. Marital rape is still legal in India. It's as if sex is just this duty that women owe their husbands, right? Hello, hello. This is Hergajo Won't Smudge. I'm Shana. Join me as I talk to Desi women who are imagining a better, fairer world, free of all those unwritten social rules that tell us just how to be a good Desi woman. I'm pretty sure all of us have sat through Desi movies and TV dramas where the romance goes something like this. The woman is so pretty and the guy is so strong and dashing. She falls for him, but she isn't a hoe bag because she does it demurely, reluctantly. I reached out to Lisa Mangaldas because she's a sex educator and a feminist, and she talks about female pleasure without shame. Her motto is, imagine a world in which all sexual experiences are consensual, safe, and pleasurable, as in for men and women. Lisa isn't just spouting this motto. She's about making it a reality. I'm pretty convinced of that because I read her book, The Sex Book. And it's about sex, but surprisingly, its glossary doesn't have words like scrotum. It has words like patriarchy, casteism, privilege. Today, I get to ask Lisa why. Why has she included these words in the glossary of her sex book? And how can women and men truly connect with their own sexuality? You're a graduate of Columbia University. What did you study while you were there? I majored in English literature and visual art, and all my writing and artwork was focused on gender and sexuality. But I mean, I would have happily majored and undecided if I could have. I loved being an undergraduate in a liberal arts college. And I did the most diverse array of courses from evolutionary biology to linguistics, to the history of religion, to art. And I mean, in a way, I feel like art and literature allows you to learn about history and psychology and culture and, you know, so many different themes via the study of text and images and creating, you know, writing and reading and making art and different kinds of visual media. So I would have happily studied a lot of things and had to kind of narrow down to to something by the time it was my junior year. But I, I loved being a student, loved. Was it a surprise to you that you ended up in a career about sex education or did you always have a kind of interest in exploring this as a career? And why did you choose to do it through the gender lens? What drew you to that? I've always been very interested in it, obviously, because it's a part of my identity that I am aware of and made aware of every day. And I've also always been really interested in sexuality. I think that 
you know, it's something we don't get to talk about very much publicly, especially in India. But I think it's such a fascinating part of being human. And, you know, I think when you look back, things all make sense. But no, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. And I actually started my sex education platforms on the internet as a passion project five or six years ago, alongside my career as a TV presenter. I had, you know, when I graduated from college, the internet wasn't even a place where one thought one could make a career yet. It was more like this sort of place where you watched homemade videos for fun now and then, you know, we didn't, I don't think we were quite as reliant on the internet as we are now, even as recently as, at least in India, as 2011, which was when I graduated. I don't think the idea of like a social media career existed back then. So I couldn't have foreseen it for myself yet. But I quickly realized that that the, even journalism as a space was changing so much and print media and television media was becoming less and less relevant, especially to young people who were, you know, internet first. There was so much change right at the time when I started my career in the media. So kind of alongside this more mainstream TV stuff I was doing, I started a YouTube channel. Back then, Instagram wasn't video oriented. It was a photo sharing platform. And I thought, you know, even if like 10 people tune in, I think it'll be worthwhile. I, this is just stuff that's on my mind. And I want to interview people who might have different experiences and opinions on subjects like this, you know, whether it's pleasure or contraception or activism or I mean, it was the whole the whole gamut of like sexuality on the whole, I just felt was so under addressed in the Indian context, you know, and even it was so much less addressed than it is now, even as as recently as five or six years ago. So that's what drove me really, it came from a place of like, I wish I had this, so I'm going to create this. I never thought it would become my whole career, it only became sustainable about two years ago when I quit everything else I was doing to focus on this full time. And did your parents ever have like the sex talk with you? So I'm very lucky to have had, to have rather extremely sort of liberal and free thinking, supportive parents who've always tried their best to answer any questions that we had growing up, my brother and I. And so I never, I, I feel lucky that I was never made to feel that this was a subject I could not talk to my family about. But I mean, you grow up in a society, right? Your parents are just two people in a much larger ecosystem. And so I think even though I had this tremendous privilege of having open-minded and non-judgmental parents, it is, I think, impossible to escape the shame and conditioning that comes with just being a member of a larger society. Also like the heteronormativity and the kind of ideas around, you know, gender expectations and what, what it means to be a good girl. I think even though my parents didn't necessarily impose those ideas, they're so omnipresent that you cannot escape them. The trolling is actually, you know, it begins at home, like your own parents or in-laws or brother or whoever else is going to try to get in your way. You know, it's not even the trolls on the internet that you see as your biggest obstacle, you know? So I do recognize it's a huge privilege. You've been doing this for five years now. What do you see is sort of the resistance to talking about sex in Desi society? What is it that people are afraid of? I think there's this idea that it is simply not appropriate to talk about this. You know, respectable people don't talk about this. Good girls certainly don't talk about this. What will people think, right? The whole, the preoccupation with log kya kahenge. And I think that, you know, we inherited 
this sort of 18th century Victorian morality via colonialism, which found its most willing sort of partner in oppression in the caste system. And so suddenly these ideas that, you know, that sex can only be had legitimately after marriage, ideally within an endogamous marriage, like that is the only truly respectable context within which sex can be had, right? With your opposite sex, same religion, same caste husband, (laughs) then you can go to a gynecologist, ideally to deliver a baby. So you get a lot of questions from viewers, listeners. Do you think that there's a difference between educating men and educating women about sex? So I think that unfortunately, it's one of those things where the discourse almost conditions people to see men and women as extremely different and therefore that it is necessary to convey information very differently. But I think, I mean, it'll take time to unlearn all of that. But when you do have the privilege of dismantling some of the conditioning you've inherited, you've realized that in so many ways, gender and ideas of what it means to be a man versus what it means to be a woman are socially constructed and imposed literally from birth. And that were we to be able to think of who we are and what we might look like and how our bodies function, Outside of that, like, you know, very rigidly constructed sort of framework that's been imposed, there's actually quite a lot that is much more similar than than different. Mm -hmm. And, And I mean, some people might not resonate with constructions of masculinity or femininity. You know, I mean, there's identity outside of the binary and what genitals you have does not dictate your gender identity. You know, those types of ideas, I feel at this point, make it very difficult to say that, yeah, men and women need to be talked to about this very differently. So I actually try and create messaging that's as relevant to everybody as possible. So that's my approach. Although I'm very keen to, I think, uh, shine the light on women and women's pleasure, because as a woman, and as, uh, since women's pleasure has been systemically ignored for so long, that is a theme of particular significance to me. I also really try hard to kind of talk about as many different things as possible and to as wide an audience as possible. So this is a good segue into female satisfaction. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a movie that came out called Vera the Wedding, and one of the female characters masturbates in it. And the actress, Svara Baskar, said in response to some trolling, everyone will have their own perspective, and it is good, and it is good that a conversation has started. In the whole of South Asia, there is this culture of silence when it comes to issues of female sexuality female body or female desire. We are silent about it. So I wanted to ask you, why is there such a taboo around female satisfaction? I think such a cornerstone of the patriarchy is being able to surveil and control women, right? But I think the idea of like the woman as this vehicle of reproduction, this this unit via which existing social hierarchies uh, ought to be replicated, um, ensure that these concerns around purity and existing sort of caste and religious hierarchies and things like that are very much still at play within institutions like marriage, which do in India st- still largely determine who and when people can have sex, you know. So I think that pleasure, like we're not even thinking about pleasure. It's like you are your dad's property till you become your husband's property and then you better have a male heir, 
right? And that is your value. We don't care whether you're having a good time. I mean, even the law doesn't recognize women's autonomy. Marital rape is still legal in India. It's as if sex is just this duty that women owe their husbands, right? And I mean, it's presented. I feel like we, they don't even make bones about it. We're not very um, concerned about political correctness here for the most part, you know? It's like sex is the site of pain and shame and duty for women. I say this a lot because I feel like these three words are really at the forefront of how women are encouraged to see sex. It's going to hurt and it's something you just have to do for your husband and good girls don't talk about or enjoy or sort of take a assertive or active role in this. You're supposed to be the passive recipient. Just lie back and take it. You should never initiate it. You shouldn't seem like you know what you're doing. You shouldn't seem like you're enjoying it, right? That would make you a slut or it's so bizarre, right? It's like you should, you are expected to literally partake in something against your own sort of will. You know, it's like it's it, the right way to do this is that you are reluctantly doing it. You know, you shouldn't want to do it, but you can't say you don't want to do it either. So you must reluctantly participate in this in this act because that's what a good wife does. And there's a kind of romanticization around the predator. The man is supposed to be the predator. And I wanted to also ask you about another taboo, porn. So I believe in India, porn was banned, but of course people find their workarounds for that. What are the different reasons that people watch porn? You know, for starters, it's so central to the architecture of the internet that even if you're not looking for it, you will find it. I think there's studies that are more specific to the U.S. but tell a story that I think would be applicable for any country with similar internet access levels. But something like 50% of all young people by the age of 10 will have access porn, whether deliberately or inadvertently, in the U.S. And that stat is a few years old, actually. It's probably even more now because even more people have internet. But I think that's a very telling statistic. I mean, particularly given that parents and schools don't talk about sex, but there's the silence and refusal, I think that young people are turning to the internet for this information and what's far easier to find than, you know, some <laughs> sort of like feminist sex education or even ethical porn is mainstream studio produced often quite problematic, violent, misogynistic porn, right? So I think banning it is hardly the solution. It's There's just too much of it. I mean, I think it was so central to the construction of the internet from its very beginning that there is no escaping it. It's there. And it might even have some benefits to some people. I mean, some people might find their sexuality affirmed or learn something about sex. Or to a large extent, it is a stand-in for sex education because sex education is so poorly delivered, if it is delivered at all. But I think that we need to equip young people with the tools via which to make sense of the media that they consume, to be discerning about the media they consume, right? The idea of porn literacy, I think, is a more helpful sort of solution, I think, than trying to ban anything. And anyway, when you ban something, it only makes people more curious about it. So how can we get young people to understand that this is a form of adult entertainment? It was never intended to be a sort of template for what sex is or what sex should look like. It's not the most 
accurate visual reference point for sex necessarily, right? It's like learning to drive by watching the Fast and the Furious or something. Very few things in life are all good or all bad or like we have to, you know, ban this. I think those are not very helpful ways of dealing with things. I think you want to try and find a way where you can utilize the benefits and minimize the harms, right? So how can we do that? And I think already there's a, a increasing number of adult filmmakers who are trying to respond to the problems with mainstream porn by creating a more sort of nuanced and diverse and feminist pornography or erotic films or whatever you want to call it, you know, ethical porn. I think there's all this indie feminist porn and and, and even the idea of like the actor or the sex worker or the character sort of being able to create their own films with um, platforms like OnlyFans and things like that, you know, also address some of the exploitative practices of the porn making process where often the people in the films didn't have sufficient agency or autonomy or, you know, control over what they were doing and whether they even wanted to do it. Can I ask you a little bit about how you became a feminist? What was your aha moment? You know, I'm I'm so grateful and lucky to have been raised by extremely feminist women. My mom and her mom are both just my heroes. <laughs> they they are icons, truly. And so I think that from a very young age, I had role models in my life of women who were extremely self-aware and empowered and had opinions and were not going to tolerate any bullshit. And they stuck out, you know? I mean, I feel like even up until my mother's generation, most women didn't have the option of um, working, for example. Many of my parents' friends, their moms didn't work, and that was just expected of them. My mom worked. She never changed her last name after marriage. They really did everything they could to be true to themselves. And that was just how it was. I think what was so exciting to see, and especially when you become more and more aware of the rest of the world, that your house and your family is is just one tiny little fraction of like a much larger universe, right? As you become a teenager or whatever, an adolescent, you kind of gain that consciousness. I felt really lucky to have never been made to feel by people inside my own home or family as if my prospects were limited or or restricted to these few things because I'm a woman. You know what I mean? I think that that's imposed by families so often. Like, these are the only things you can do and this is how you have to be and you will do this and this is how women behave. And so I feel really lucky that I never had that and in fact that I had these really feisty and independent thinking women in the house. So... Yeah, I feel like I never haven't been a feminist. (laughs) I don't know. But I think your feminism evolves, right? And you realize also that nobody's feminism is perfect. And even you can be a feminist and still end up making choices or slipping up or finding yourself in situations that don't feel very feminist, right? So I can't say that I have always been able to, to live up to the ideals of feminism in every aspect of my life. No, I mean, I've fucked up in so many ways so often and and society will ensure that you do you know even when you know things it's sometimes harder to actually in practice reject certain expectations or norms or situations or whatever it is than it is when you're constructing an Instagram post so I can't say that that I'm doing everything right no but I'm really glad I had reference points that 
provided a vision for something I could aspire to. It's a process, I think. Being a feminist is very much a process. You're constantly bombarded with situations at home and society where you have to kind of, you know, rethink and remember. You've written the sex book, which I have to say I really enjoyed reading. And one of the things that I thought was so remarkable about this book is the glossary because the glossary, I expected it would have words like, you know, foreskin and breasts and whatever, but instead it's got words like patriarchy, feminism, and ableism, you know, words that I didn't expect to see in a glossary in a sex book. Why did you choose these types of words for your glossary? You know, I think when someone sees a book titled The Sex Book, it can be tempting to think that sex is just like intercourse or something, that this is a book about only the act of sex. But I think of sex as a really a word that is much wider than that in its potential, right? Sex as sexuality, as identity, as a sort of all-encompassing umbrella word for so much stuff that enters into the way we experience sexuality. So I think that we often come to the word sex thinking of like a penis in a vagina, but there's so much more to it than that. And I think when we think about who we are, like I really wanted the reader to think about like, who am I from reading this book? Who am I? You know, how do I identify? Who am I sexually? But also like, who am I? I mean, Indians, young Indians are not encouraged to ask that question. You just do as you're told. You will study what we tell you. You will marry who we tell you. You will eat what we tell you. You will wear what we tell you. That's how you're treated at age five. And that's how you're treated at age 25, you know? And so I really wanted people to come into this and think about like, why do I hold the beliefs I do about certain things? Am I truly objective in my you know, in who I'm choosing to date. Like, I think if you don't know the word ableism or you don't know the word casteism or you don't know the word um, internalized oppression or whatever the other words in my glossary, it's going to be harder for you to think about the external factors that may actually result in quite prejudiced preferences when it comes to who you're willing to date. You know, I think to a large extent, we're all extremely prejudiced, especially in we're encouraged to be in how we see who we're willing to engage with romantically or sexually or even even simply engage in a friendship with or employ even, you know? It's so crazy. Some people will not employ a chauffeur of a religion different than theirs. I mean, it's cr absolutely crazy. So I wanted people to think about these, these isms because I think they impact how we navigate relationships, how we see ourselves, and certainly also how we navigate our sex lives. But I think it's important for us to remember that cisgendered, heterosexual, and able-bodied doesn't occupy those things. But basically, whether you're neurodivergent or you you know, have a disability, we kind of pretend those things don't exist. Nobody ever talks about that. That's even a subject of further silence than even just sex in the most mainstream ways. So I think that while there's all that shame around losing your virginity before marriage or too early or whatever it is, there's also all this shame around remaining of a, a virgin, right? That you shouldn't have sex before what society says is right, but then you should also shouldn't have not had sex by a certain age, right? And there's this idea that like, if a man hasn't had sex, he's a loser. And, you know, so I think that actually that's that's also just as ridiculous. And I want to just point out that I, I don't only intend to advocate for sex positivity in that sex should be, that having sex or the presence of sex or whatever sex becomes disassociated from shame, but also the decision to not have sex should also be 
the shame should be eliminated from that. Maybe you're asexual and never want to have sex. That's also fine. The whole point is to have no shame and be able to do whatever you want to do, to participate or not. And I think men don't benefit from this type of culture of shame either. They think they do, but they don't. I think there's a lot of men who haven't yet had sex, especially in India, and feel really bad about it. That's the sense I get from the the whole predator gatekeeper thing where men are predators, supposed to be predators and women are supposed to be gatekeepers. And and I think globally we're seeing also the results of I mean, with communities like incels and things like that. I think this culture of shaming people for having not had sex also has very dangerous consequences, just as shaming people for having sex can. Right. That's a whole other level. You've talked about how one of the things that you've really come to appreciate about the channel you started is how much unlearning you had to do. And you found yourself kind of thinking about things and rethinking about them. Could you share with us one of those things that you came up against and helped yourself sort of unlearn? You know, when I was really young, I mean, I'm 32 now, but in my 20s, I guess, I don't know if that's really young or not, but whatever. (laughs) In my 20s, I really thought that my pleasure was too much to ask for because it seemed so difficult. Like, how do I have an orgasm? I just am going to fake it because I don't want to hurt the guy or I don't want to pretend. I mean, I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm doing. I also don't want to hurt his ego and it's going to take too long. And so, and it just seemed like this is how it is. Like, this is what women do. You just, I mean, maybe it feels good, but whether or not you're actually really enjoying yourself, you've got to pretend like you are, right? I think I didn't, I didn't even know my own arousal anatomy and pleasure well enough to ask for what I wanted and I had sufficiently internalized the type of messaging around women's pleasure being difficult you know takes a long time it's complicated and mysterious orgasms are elusive where is you know have you and will you ever find your g-spot these types of this this is the type of language that women's magazines pop culture any kind of mainstream media around women's pleasure presented women's orgasms and pleasures as as some kind of mystery, right? This thing that like maybe one day, if you're lucky, you will unearth. And I think, you know, up until like around the time I started my channel, actually, funnily enough, that was something that really galvanized the creation of this content as well. I really kind of didn't, I didn't feel like I knew exactly how to like reach the maximum possible pleasure that my body can experience in bed. It felt accidental or, you know, out of my control. And I also thought that it would rely on the skill level or like commitment in a physical sort of way of the partner. And it was only after I bought my first vibrator that I realized how easy it is actually. Like I can orgasm in three minutes, you know, every time. It's not that difficult. But if we construct sex as this penetration-centric act, focused around erection, penetration, ejaculation, and it ends when he comes and clitoral stimulation is like, you know, a happy accident if it happens at all, then of course Mm -hmm. we're not going to orgasm, right? I mean, so often men will literally have sex with you as if they're masturbating inside of you, especially casual sex. Like that's how it feels, right? There's no, so many men don't even know where the clitoris is. And because we never talk about it, many women also don't realize how central it is to the experience of orgasm for most people with vulvas, just penetration. I mean, you end up just looking at the ceiling fan sometimes, you know, coupled with clitoral stimulation, it's more likely to yield a orgasmic result. Whereas 
We just never learn about this stuff. Clitoral stimulation is relegated to the realm of foreplay. If it's even talked about at all, it's often just entirely ignored. And of course, there's other ways to orgasm. I'm not saying that's the only way, but it is the most effective route for most people. And it's something we don't ever learn about. It would be like approaching sex with a man without knowing where the penis is. You know, I mean, that would be unthinkable to men, but that's literally how sex can feel for most straight couples where nobody's paying attention to the clitoris. So I think like those types of things, like, you know, feeling entitled to pleasure, feeling entitled also to being able to be assertive and sexually confident, like that's okay to do. I think these ideas of of being a good girl, I was definitely, even though I had a very, very supportive family, et cetera, et cetera, I think I'm a people pleaser and always wanted to, I wanted to get straight A's. I wanted the gold stars. I want, you know, I like, I feel like in my general life, some of these, the same character traits that might have made me a good student or a good daughter or whatever else, whatever else, also <laughs> translate into like thinking that the other person's pleasure really matters and yours doesn't. And and I think that's such a that's actually such a, such a kind of ideal set for South Asian women that you must always minimize your needs. And and actually not even just South Asian. I mean, I think the construction of womanhood is such that the good woman must minimize her needs, must be sacrificial and benevolent and constantly give, right? You're supposed to only give and not take. And you're supposed to be just this paragon of kindness and empathy and somehow a support for everyone else, but never advocating for yourself. Those types of ideas, I feel like I definitely somehow did very much feel beholden to and have, and I'm still working on letting go of. Society wants women to remain pure and chaste. And if we were to run that through the glossary that you have at the beginning of your book, how could we try to unlearn some of the isms around that concept? I think the word virginity is finally receiving some long overdue pushback. The idea that virginity itself is just an absurd construction because what does it mean to be a virgin? anyway, right? I mean, the word comes from the idea of the Immaculate Conception, the Virgin Mary, etc. But by defining virginity as whether somebody has had penis and vagina sex or not, is not only like a completely arbitrary way of defining what constitutes a sexual experience, it also actually completely ignores the fact that some people might have sex that never involves this combination of organs, you know? It's like a big fairy tale, the idea of virginity. And it's one where better off discarding because really, who does it serve? I think also people only, you know, tend to see women in this, the the trope of the Madonna whore complex, right? You're either a virgin or a whore. There's no middle, like somehow you can either be respectable or sexy. There's a certain type of woman you want to fuck and a different type of woman you want to marry. Like, what is this bullshit? You know, it's so frustrating for the view to be so limiting and so sort of stereotypical and and to to want to box people like that, I think is so frustrating. And I think also to to associate sex with shame in that way, where it is shameful to have had sex, where, where sexual inexperience is somehow trophy worthy quality is also a very strange way of constructing things i said literally do not see who it serves it's so funny that this that men will say they want a virgin wife right but they also want her to be able to fuck like a porn star once they're having (laughs) it's so it's so bizarre and it has really dire consequences i mean we even in 2023 there are 
women who are being killed for not bleeding on their wedding night or, you know, for having been discovered to have had a previous relationship before marriage or that is still happening in various parts of the world, including the region we inhabit. So like in 2023, how is that acceptable? Absolutely. Another thing that you talk about in the sex book is consent and consent within the context of sexual experience. And you make the point that to better navigate consent in our sexual relationships, we need to value consent in all areas of life. And then you talk about how, you know, for a lot of people, they don't get to choose who they marry. They may not get to choose what career they have, that the idea of consent is not just about consent in the bedroom, but it's about rethinking consent as a broader social construct. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I absolutely think that it isn't just a sexual thing, right? And I think an intuitive understanding and respect for consent should be cultivated from infancy. And that's not something we do, especially in you know, certain regions even more so than others. I mean, it's I feel like us, Southern Italy and India have some <laughs> some commonalities in how they raise children with the parents having a lot of, the mom having a lot of say on what the child does. Of course, it's okay to guide your child. That's not, you know, children need a, a parent's support and care and guidance, of course. But wouldn't it be nice if we also encouraged a sense of sort of willingness to hear what the child might want to do or wear or eat or, you know, maybe they don't want to hug that uncle or maybe they, we don't listen to that stuff, right? I mean, I think so often even an understanding of just boundaries is something that we don't get to cultivate because our boundaries are so relentlessly disregarded. Part of that has to do with the fact that often, in, I mean, in a developing country, most people have so little privacy that you're not even physically able to have any boundaries. You don't have a space of your own. You're sharing bedrooms, bathrooms, this and that and you know the youngest members of the family and most likely the young girls they're like the bottom of the pecking order in terms of who gets access or you know any kind of alone time or, or like even the idea of any boundary at all so I feel like I mean it's a tall order too because we have so many different issues at play in a society like ours where even if you wanted to provide better often economic circumstances don't allow you to but I think it would be wonderful if, if as parents instead of constantly having the you will do as I say approach we also listened whether it's small things like even between two kids whether you're willing to share or whether you want to do something with them or not. I think instead of the two parents deciding what the kids should do, wouldn't it be nice if children were encouraged to be respectful and kind to each other such that it just became the default? It didn't have to be, you know, a do as I say thing. You're not being kind because your parent is telling you to be kind. You're being kind because you understood from a very young age that it matters how something makes the other person feel, not just how you feel, you know? I mean, those are such basic ideas, but often we don't cultivate that understanding. If the only reason a kid is doing something is because you told them, then even the good things they're doing is, is coming from a place of fear or following the rules, not a sort of intuitive understanding that the other people matter and, you know, or what I'm doing has consequences that go beyond just me. So I feel like, yeah, in, in so many ways, a culture of consent has to extend way, way beyond and well before you're ever in a bedroom with a sexual intention. Right. So I wanted to just say that you're a sex educator, that's for sure, and you're a damn fine one at that. But I think you're so much more than that, too, because you're talking about sex, um, not just from the point of view of like sex and orgasm and 
foreplay, but from the view of how we are conditioned by society to see everything through this very narrow, binary, cisgender, heteronormative, male gaze lens, and which frankly doesn't serve any of us, not even the men, as you've said many times. So I just want to thank you for that, Lisa. And it's been such a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Shana. It was my pleasure entirely. And thank you for the amazing work you're doing. It means so much to to be a guest on your podcast and to have you elevate women like this. Thank you. Thanks so much. Lisa's thinking about sex as way more than gratification. She's talking about sex as a kind of self-reflective awareness of, hey, what do I like in bed? What is pleasurable to me? And to answer these questions, we've got to unlearn a lot of stuff that's been passed down about what is quote unquote acceptable. I really want to imagine, like Lisa, a world in which all sexual experiences are consensual, safe, and pleasurable for men and women inclusively. Thank you for listening to Her Ganja Won't Smudge. I'm your host, Shauna. If you want to get in touch with us in rage or have a good cry or just tell us what you're thinking, look for our webpage online or find us on social media. Until next week.